Hello and welcome again to Jeff Geeks for Proust. Allow me to introduce myself. Embodying erudition in examinations of entertainment. Ooh. A persistently prolix podcaster par excellence. Ah. I am Mr. Tilt Eraser. Gary Rogers here and all. Yeah, I've actually decided I don't want to be called Gary Roger anymore. From now on, I want to be known as Tipsy Swell. Go on then, let's see you Piccadilly Weepers. Uh, how dare you? This is a Cleden podcast. Now, I shall continue to heckle and generally cause trouble throughout this show until such time as Nosha Powell knocks me out. I should have waxed my moustache for this show. So this week, we're having an evening in the music hall. And I'm glad we called the show that. Because this is going to be nowhere near a definitive examination of what music hall is, what it means, what it was, what people think it was, and what it really was. This was meant to be our relaxation show. After last time, and that very, very heavily researched, dense, painstaking examination of industrial action, I thought, right, we'll schedule a show for the week after where we just watch something and yap about it. And I did a little bit of research. For every door I opened, another three were behind that door. And oh, there's too much to take in. So there are going to be gaps in the things I say, but I like to think that we will indicate some interesting paths that can be taken. I think that there will be a wide spectrum of further reading. Well, I'll start off actually by crediting a couple of sources. Dr. Bruce Rosen and his blog... Vic Hist, V-I-C-H-I-S-T, dot blogspot.com. And on YouTube, there is a lecture about penny gaffes. I couldn't catch the name of the person giving the lecture, but it was at the Camden Arts Centre, and it's well worth a watch. Because that's where I started. I did a bit of research into Music Hall. That led me to penny gaffes. And I realised I was in trouble when I found myself back at the end of the English Civil War. But in some ways, that's where our story starts. During the Commonwealth theatres were banned. I think we all know that. And then during the Restoration, theatres were legalised, but it wasn't just a reverse of the ban. There are still some limitations, and different laws are passed. There's a Licensing Act 1737. I mean, that's a long time after the Restoration. But to give you an idea of the things that I looked at that made me go cross-eyed, we end up in a situation at the beginning of the 19th century. There are two theatres in London which are allowed to work under patent. If you want to put on drama, you can only put it in one of two theatres. Of course, it has to be approved by the Lord Chamberlain's office. And this results in penny gaffes. Penny gaffes are effectively illegal theatres. Bootleg drama. I mean, we'd heard the term legitimate theatre. I didn't realise there was actually such a thing as the illegitimate theatre. Well, you see, when you say bootleg drama, now everybody's thinking of that HBO hack and all those Game of Thrones scripts that are flying around <laughs> cyberspace. Well, let's face it. If somebody said, look, um, some mates have got one of those Game of Thrones scripts, and you think, well, I don't want to read that. It's like, no, they're going to stage it in our back room. It's going to come. <laughs> Cost you a penny. Yeah, you're in. I, I actually, yeah, I would. I would. I love this idea, but they're, they're horrible, smelly, dangerous places. <laughs> penny caps. Are they full of rough boys? They are. There is a sizable child audience, even though I've seen an illustration from one of the lectures 
of the audience of a penny gaff and you got kids there smoking. I'm imagining Ken Jones as Audible Ives taking the money at the door. I mean, one famous penny gaff was Wheatley's Theatre of Variety, which was a shed. Find a space with room for lots of people and a stage, get them in, give them some entertainment for a penny and get them out and get the next lot in. (laughs) That's how it worked. And there would be a sing-song and then there would be any number of things happening, but the thing that marks it out in my eyes is there would be a drama and it could be some trashy melodrama, particularly popular. And this is going to come in when we start looking at some music hall stuff. Newgate plays. They love a good murder. And in fact, I think if you look on our notes of stuff we've got to do one day on Jaffa Cakes, you'll see the name Todd Slaughter. He ends up being the inheritor of that side of the culture. He takes it into the movies. There would even be performances of Shakespeare rewritten. And in some cases, there'd be a nod from somebody in charge saying, either, (laughs) come on, that's enough. There are enough people outside to fill the house, get this lot out, or maybe even the Rosas. Because these places used to get raided. There were undercover cops raiding these places, so you'd get situations where uh, there'd be a Shakespeare play that would end two-thirds of the way through. Well, Romeo and Juliet are married. What happens next? They're fine. Bye. So this relates to Music Hall. Just look at the name, Music Hall. That's what they put on. It's songs. It's outside of the licensing, but it's not illegal. As long as they're not putting on plays, they're fine. And the Music Hall blossoms after the 1843 Theatres Act, which loosens things a little bit more. And on the other side of things, we've got sing-alongs in pubs. Music halls in some way grow out of sing-alongs in pubs. This leads us to Wilton's, which grew out of a pub called the Prince of Denmark, and the landlord buying the buildings around it, and walls got knocked through to create one big space, and that's it. You've got a music hall. It's a step up from a penny gaff. In theory, it's not doing anything that will cause legal trouble. But the reason I wanted to do this is, like anybody of taste and good sense, I've been watching the good old days on BBC4. And for a while I was allowing that to colour my view of what Music Hall was. And then I remembered, I was looking through an old Radio Times, and I remembered this thing I've seen, Wilton's, the handsomest hall in town, television special from 1970. And I thought, hang on a minute, that was completely different. It was different in really fascinating ways from the good old days. It was earthier. And also, it was much more unlike anything I'm used to, anything I've grown up with. And Gary, you've seen it as well, haven't you? I've seen it, yes. And it is more down-to-earth, slightly edgy portrayal in comparison to the good old days. Because the good old days, it's very polite. Everybody's polite. Nobody heckles on the good old days. Nobody is ever thrown out for being a drunkard. And you've also got the good-natured heckling, which is more tolerable. I mean, good old days is only inaccurate to a certain extent. I think there were middle-class music halls. You've kind of got a spectrum at the bottom. Well, the bottom, maybe there's a layer above the penny gaffs, which is slightly raucous music halls where, of course, the lights don't go down as well. The audience is as well lit as the stage. Oh, hang on, that's another thing as well, but the good old days. No one's ever blue. Oh, come on. No, okay. So you might get occasionally Ken Dodd making a bit of a double entendre. But no, no, nobody ever comes out and starts going full-on Judge Dredd or anything like that. They didn't need to, though. I think there was just a generally agreed-upon code. 
in Wilton's, there are a number of acts. We'll go through it slightly more detailed. We're not going to skip over it. But one thing that struck me in Wilton's, assuming that this is a fair reflection of a music hall bill of the time, nobody sings a love song throughout the entire show. Now, Music Hall did have love songs. The Boy I Love is up in the gallery. Daisy Bell. But love songs are not the predominant thing. There are a lot of songs about drinking and a lot of songs about sex and occasionally mildly tragic songs as well. So that's what I'm drawn to. I'm drawn to the bits that don't seem to have survived intact. You might want to draw a line between you get plays and horror films, but I don't think it's quite the same. We're talking about a fascination with death and horror that's like mainstream prime time. Does that make sense? I would say that instead of drawing a line between that and horror films, you draw a line between that and the On This Day feature hosted by Jeremy Beadle on early TVAM. <laughs> and the thing is, yeah, you'd still get trash these days. You get programs on like CI Crime Investigation Network, which is just, you know, tawdry going over old cases and you still get those like cheap magazines and the news agents you know it's just like you know detective stories and murder cases and all that. but you don't get famous on it apart from taggart yeah but that's drama that in some ways that's kind of legitimate it's not gone away but i, I don't want to jump the gun but we're going to talk about gw ross described in the documentary about music hall presented by michael grade as i think a one-hit wonder but that hit was so in demand i think he could dine out on it for a long time and that was the thing that inspired me watching this and thinking this is not like anything i can relate to anything i see now it doesn't occupy the same space in the culture i mean we could talk about gangster rap and things like that it's not gone away but it's moved and in moving it's changed i really couldn't talk about gangster rap the day that we start talking about gangster rap on jaffa's is, is when i'm going to retire to be honest but we start talking about that and say, oh, those were the days. You don't hear of it now, of course. Yeah, but there's still some recordings out there. Yeah. Do you remember ages ago, DCT did a show where he played bad records and he played something about the Chicago fire. And the song, it's an odd sentimental song and there's a spoken word section where this woman, I think she's like looking at her son's body and she does this weird little... Oh, this is horrible. Oh, to see this and thinking, they? It's the way it's presented. So, right, shall we go through Wilton's? Tell the people what they're missing. And seriously, if you've never seen this, maybe BBC4 could be persuaded to repeat it? Uh, well, with edits. Okay, so <laughs> we'll come to that in a minute. Okay, so Wilton's, the handsomest hall in town. It's from Boxing Day 1970. Grad of a preservation effort. The building was still standing but not in use. And Spike Milligan was one of the people at the centre of this. I'm trying to remember who else was. Hang on a minute. I have my radio time somewhere here. Well, whilst you're having a look at that, I'll give the cast list. Along with the aforementioned Spike, we have Peter Sellers, Keith Michelle, Pat Kirkwood, Warren Mitchell, Ronnie Barker. Our chairman for the proceedings is Bill Fraser. Amongst the dancers, I spot the name of Jenny Leyland, who was one of the gentle sex on 321. And, of course, if there's any trouble going on in the place, then Nosher Powell, who turns up in this, that, and everything in this era, he will turn out and give you a good uh, doing, knock you about, tough you out of the place. 
And the script is by Jimmy Petty. And it looks splendid as well. I mean, of course, we're only three years into color TV in the UK, and it's perfect for it. This looks splendid. Oh, of course, producer of Wilson's was Michael Mills, also producer of Chance of the Million. Well, this Radio Times only mentioned Spike Milligan's involvement, but he pointed out that Wilton's was still standing. They got permission from the GLC to reopen it and put on a show. And that's what went out, Boxing Day 1970. Well, we start off with Spike Milligan, and if you know anything about entertainment history, Bill Fraser as the chairman, announces, ladies and gentlemen, that Ethiopian entertainer. And you, got, you kind of face palm a bit. And you got, oh. and that's why BBC4 ain't going to show this anytime soon. Just announce it up top. It was of historical interest then, so he's playing E.W. Mackney, who was a minstrel performer. I don't know if we should really get into British responses to minstrelsy. I don't know if I have anything new or enlightening. Of course... BBC4 once broadcast a documentary about the black and white minstrel show. It's probably all in there. That is a really, really good documentary. I've not seen it ever since it went out. I think it was about 2004, thereabouts. Yeah, no, I mean, the one thing I do remember from that is that there were critics at the time. I think George Melly actually penned a piece in one of the newspapers in the very early days of the show, criticising it. So it wasn't just a, a 1970s thing. And then, of course, there was that little to do with one of the ex-George Mitchell singers uh, having an argument with Bill Cotton on open air. Die Francis. Yes, there you go. Sorry, I'm just thinking, why did I know that? Why was I able to answer that so quickly? Bill Cotton didn't even look him in the eye and just said, Die, we're into alternative comedy now. <laughs> Don't bring your in-jokes here. Anyway, so the first <laughs> act is Spike Milligan, blacktop, with a banjo, singing a minstrel tune it would have had a different meaning to an English audience than it would to an American audience. And there was this banjo craze that then kicked off in the UK. But there's not much to say about it. If you've ever heard that kind of song, it is it's a plantation song. Next we have Warren Mitchell as Gus Elan. I have seen three different performances of Gus Elan numbers. Warren Mitchell as Gus Elan. George Sewell as Gus Elan and Gus Elan. I like Gus Elan third best. <laughs> that being said, when the film was taken, of course, it was long after his heyday, and it was a good thing that he was still around as an old man to do some performances. It's valuable stuff. Warren Mitchell actually does try and get some of Elan's gestures in, and he, he's more close, whereas George Sewell is just singing it as George Sewell dressed as a costermonger. It's an effective performance, but I'm not sure if it's historically accurate. That's from a drama series called The Edwardians, and there's a whole thing about unionising. I think Jack Douglas is in that. We should watch that. And we should also watch Funny Man as well. No, we shouldn't. I've watched Funny Man, and I'm not watching it again. And he sings the song, It's a Great Big Shame. I mean, that's a song... What is it? There are two different types of entertainment, if you want to look at it that way. It's probably a stupid thing to say, anything that divides so simply. There are only seven plots. Police Academy, Police Academy 2. <laughs> Revenge of the Pink Panther? There are two boxes you can put entertainment in if you wish to. Escapist and Reminder. And a lot of this music hall stuff, this raw folk type music hall stuff, is Reminder. It's him singing about he's got a friend... And his friend is a great big fella and a manly man, and he's married to this horrible little woman who pushes him about. In fact, shall I pull out the George Orwell quote? This is George Orwell talking about seaside postcards. But I think it applies to 
all of this kind of stuff, really. Low entertainment. Working class people getting together. And this is why there are always these pushes in some ways, without turning this into a whole class thing. This is why it's something like Penny Gaff's Music Hall, because there were attempts to push the Music Hall back. Working class people getting together, always worrying. Orwell says, The whole meaning and virtue is in their unredeemed lowness. Not in the sense of obscenity, but lowness of outlook in every direction whatever. The slightest hint of higher influences would ruin them utterly. They stand for the worm's eye view of life. For the music hall world where marriage is a dirty joke or a comic disaster. Where the rent is always behind and the clothes are always up the spout. Where the lawyer is always a crook and the Scotsman is always a miser. Do you want to rebut that? What a doomed... Right, I'll rebut that. I'm from Yorkshire and the Scots are a bunch of spendthrifts. Gary, do you know how to make a Yorkshireman? You take a Scotsman and you remove his generosity. No, if I'd said that, you know, all hell would have broken loose. Where the newlyweds make fools of themselves on hideous beds of seaside lodging houses and the drunken red-nosed husbands roll out at four in the morning to meet linen nightgowned wives who wait for them behind the front door poker in hand. That's this world. And it's not a bad world to inhabit, is it? I'm trying to think of other Gus Eland numbers. There's the one about ale. For breakfast I like a little bit of meat and half a pint of ale. Okay, I, I haven't pushed Gus Eland into fourth place with that impression, so. <laughs> Gus Eland, of course, is quoted in ever-decreasing circles. Hey. With a ladder and some glasses, that's how they pronounce it down south, you could see to Hackney Marshes if it wasn't for the asses in between. <laughs> and that's about, I guess, pretension about one's house, its location, how grand it is and how grand it is. And, and that's how the joke is deployed in ever-decreasing circles when he talks about Brooksmead and says, there isn't a brook. Yeah, but there was. This is going to become relevant, actually, when we start talking about pop music in the mid and late 60s. There is a turn back to music hall. And that just doesn't mean singing in a working class English accent and sounding a bit cheeky. The subject matter becomes less glamorous. I think I edited it out, but I mentioned uh, on a previous show, Lazy Sunday by The Small Faces. Okay, we're heading into the late 60s. Swinging London is going to stop swinging, but it's still at a time when being British is still pretty cool. And London has some kind of uh, capital in the cultural life of the world. And they're singing a song that has the line, sit on your cars while you suss out the moon. Look, next we have Pat Kirkwood as Carrie Harris singing the song about how she's lost her child. That's it. A woman comes on and she doesn't sing a love song. She just sings in distress. This is people turning their own, not grim, lives. Some of it's grim. Some of it's just unglamorous. I'm getting a bit Robert Robinson here. That's no way to talk about people's honest toil. But they're getting their own lives sung back to them as being worthy of being presented as entertainment. Not much to say about that. Ah, and that was the other thing that struck me. Comedy. Music hall comedy. And bring in the, um, the good old days here, because I was watching one recent, and way behind actually, I'm watching good old days. And if you're wondering how I'm watching a BBC4 show in the US, the answer is perfectly legally, thank you. Please don't ask any more questions about it. I know nothing of this arrangement. Dougie Brown comes out and does his act. And I'm thinking, this is fine, and the audience are liking it, but this doesn't actually feel like music hall. Quite a few of the acts on the good old days are like that. 
The star of the night will usually be dressed appropriately and in some cases will do an act specifically tailored around the concept. John Inman as Frank Randall. Even though Frank Randall is really after the golden age of the music hall, it seems appropriate. It seems to be part of that world. When you get the magicians and the jugglers, they tend to come on you know, with their flares and their 70s haircuts. And there's nothing particularly wrong with that. But The Good Old Days is just a 70s variety show with a concept, with a little twist. So Dougie Brown came out, did his act. It was okay, but it was wrong. It was wrong historically, which is not really any way to judge an entertainment show. But, well, we have that kind of mindset here. I'm terribly sorry about it. We were brought up on 90s clip shows, you see. I can't think. Of the examples I'm aware of, I can't think of an example from the Golden Age of Musical where somebody would come out and stand there and tell jokes. Comedy was sung. Later on in the same show I watched, Arthur Eskey was on. Now, he came out and he was amusing, and he said funny things. But then it was a lead-up to a song. So it was patter, song, little bit of patter during the song, maybe a bit of patter after the song. And that seemed to fit. Okay, I have a question. Max Miller, is he strictly variety era, or... Is there a crossover with Music Hall? Because Max Miller is a joke teller, 100%. In 1926, Max Miller was described as a comedian of the new school. Because before the stand-up comedian, there's the front cloth comedian. This is how George Roby described himself. George Roby seems to be in that point where the Music Hall comedian, and I suppose the monologist, none of the shows we've watched actually have any comic monologues, but they existed. Or, of course, there's the old routine, I can't remember where I read it, where somebody pretends to be a serious monologist. This is about the nearest he could get to drama in a music hall. Um, The green-eyed, yellow idol on the trail to Kathmandu. You know that old cliche? Mm, Yeah. Mad Carew. Somebody pretends to do that, and then somebody starts interrupting him. You know what we should have watched? We should have watched The Wheel Tappers and Shanta's Social Club. There you go. Yeah, that the number of double acts that start with, I, it wasn't Cannon and Ball either, but it was somebody in that mold. Someone came out, started singing, and the funny one in the act pretends to be a member of the audience, interrupts him, and supposedly can hear an old lady in the audience say, he's ruined his act. <laughs> Charlie Chaplin used to have a routine where he would interrupt the compare, pretend to be a drunken customer, well... Okay, I'm not actually basing that on my research onto Charlie Chaplin, more just watching the movie directed by Richard Attenborough. But I don't think he made that bit up, surely. So George Roby described himself as a front-cloth comedian, so I think he's that point where one of Roby's things was, again, speaking with this loquaciousness, excessive, elaborate rhetoric. And if I can't spell it, I can say it. That was not necessarily his catchphrase, but that was punchline to one of his routines. So he's the point where the monologist and the patter merchant becomes the front cloth comedian. He's in front of the tabs while they change for somebody else. And Max Miller was seen as something quite bold and new, coming on and just telling jokes. Even then he sang like, you know, fell in love with Mary from the Dairy. So even when you're getting into the 70s and the comedians, I think every one of those guys probably had a song to end with. That's a discussion for another day. 
you're asking these questions, you see, and this is getting more and more diffuse. This is why I'm glad we called it an evening at the music hall, because it always <laughs> gives us the opportunity for another evening at the music hall. <laughs> a further evening at the music hall. One more evening at the music hall. Absolutely, categorically, the last evening at the music hall. The secret policeman's biggest music hall. What I'm trying to lead up to is the next act at Wilton's, which is Ronnie Barker as George Bastow, singing They All Love Captain Ginger. And for everybody else, I guess, there's a certain novelty. Warren Mitchell is not doing what Warren Mitchell normally does. Well, you want to talk about Spike Milligan and Blacking Up, but he doesn't normally sing that kind of song. Ronnie Barker, you wouldn't really know that it wasn't the two Ronnies, apart from the fact that it... <laughs> The song's not as funny as it would be if Ronnie Barker had written the lyrics. But he's singing in that style that he would do in those music numbers that would end the shows. We haven't mentioned the audience at this point, have we? That's a good point, yes. Do mention the audience. Well, we've got a couple of people on the floor seating uh, who are heckling, but in a nice way. So they sort of strike me as, as if they're they're supposed to be like regulars. And Bill Fraser already knows them and what have you, and he can sort of duel back and forth with them and then you've got your actual heckler who's just the drunk upstairs half a houseman and he's swatting the can-can girls and won't be convinced otherwise and yeah eventually he has to be dealt with by the heavy and yet you don't get that in the good old days hell you don't even get that on live at the apollo now gary do you want to talk about the next acting as it's your favorite singer i go on then so, Keith Michelle, you're going to have to remind me who... What is it? I'm going to have to remind you who Keith Michelle no, is. No, no, you no, no, Keith no. Michelle should have been in the finale of Not On Your Nelly. <laughs> but you have to remember what he does. Is he Champagne Charlie? Yes. Right, okay, okay. So, Keith Michelle, as in Keith Michelle from those shows. Captain Beaky. I think, doesn't he guest on Amorkham and Wise? At least once, uh, he's in this fantastic production of Rodigo that Gilbert and Sullivan fans don't like. Of course, television's Henry VIII. Uh, he played that part at least three times that I can think of. Well, he's singing a song and also in character in the name of the song. He's playing and singing Champagne Charlie. And that leads me on to Tommy Trinder because you suggested that I watch a film of Tommy Trinder, which I've just seen. So I've just seen... Two Champagne Charlies now. It was interesting because it had a bit of history about the music hall, including the opposition by theatre owners. Now, the film Champagne Charlie, 1944, does take liberties, but I'm assuming some of it is moderately true. Oh, they're all for stone defence. Countermits, was that it? But it's also interesting in the way that it sanitises that vision of music hall. It feels like I'm kicking the good old days. I'm, I'm not. You're, you are not kicking the good old days. You should see what some people tweet on a Friday night after Top of the Pops. I can't remember what I read or saw that mentioned a particular theatre in Leeds and said, not like the Leeds City Varieties across the road, which no respectable person would be seen at. Leeds City Varieties, where they used to tape the good old days, was another one of those places that grew out of a landlord buying rooms. And actually, if you've ever been there, there is a slight rabbit warren feeling getting around. There's the stalls bar, which feels like a strange cramped little room. And there's the bar 
for is it the upper circle which oh fantastic grand old place i assume it's still as lovely after restoration when you said rooms there you actually sounded a bit like basil faulty batteries eh you know just well, this, this connotation rooms. there rooms there is there is rooms hmm? hey uh, we all know about rooms yeah we know what rooms are used for that's all i'm saying fornication <laughs> this all ties in because when Tommy Trinder, as George Leyburn, sings Champagne Charlie, the lyrics have been significantly rewritten. And Champagne Charlie has been performed on the good old days in a weird hybrid of the rewritten lyrics and the original lyrics. Tommy Trinder's Champagne Charlie makes the song look like a song about how lovely champagne is. Oh, it's a lovely drink and it makes you happy. Whereas when we see Keith Michelle as a more historically accurate George Leyburn with his stripy pants, doesn't Keith Michelle look like each leg is about 20 feet long? He looks like a stilt walker. Yeah, was he doubling that night? Was he on double duty? Had he just come from Billy Smart? It's just because you know, he was a tall guy and striped trousers must just do that for you. But he is dressed up, well, like a swell. That's what they were called by that point. We've gone past fops, we've gone past dandies, we're into swells and mashers and i believe masher came from people saying i mashed that girl last night which sounds a bit more like a modern low argo for sexual congress doesn't it if you wear the belt like the swellest of swells you can pass any matter and smile what's that from don't send them mark on my what's it called you've either got or you haven't got style so Keith Michelle's George Leyburn, and we assume the original George Leyburn, the song is about drinking and debauchery and getting hammered. And one of the lines that does not appear in the Trinder version is, the thing I most excel at is the PRFG game. And Heckler asks what it stands for and just walks up and whispers in his ear, Oh! I didn't know Frankie Howard was... I, sure. I'm sorry. PRFG is believed to stand for Private Rooms for Gentlemen. In public houses, and some music halls, we assume, there would be a room to which a gentleman could retire. Retire with somebody, if he so wished. And these things were, I think, maybe by the hour. A house of ill repute. Well, no, because it was a bit more above board in that they were just supplying the room. Not up to me what that guy does in there. To quote Edgar Kennedy, when the sailor passes by with the Lady of the Night, this is a respectable <laughs> joint. And so that's it. The chorus is Champagne Charlie is my name. Champagne Charlie is my name. Champagne drinking is my game seems to come from the rewrite. Good for any game at night, my boys. Who'll come and join me in a spree? And he's singing the last verse and he's staggering about and pretending to try and walk in a straight line and not succeed. And he even sings about the hair of the dog, about how if he's got a hangover, drinking some champagne puts him right. A good swigful of the loose sherry. He'd be first in the queue, wouldn't he, when the office opened up? <laughs> With his empty bottle. Buckfest Benny is my name. <laughs> El Dorado Eddie. <laughs> Yeah, he's, he's Stanley Holloway and then the two of them have a Barney. 
yeah, the film Champagne Charlie effectively centers around the rivalry between George Lebon and the great Vance. In fact, one of the things I like is there's some Wikipedia contradiction. One of the Wikipedia pages will tell you that George Lebon and the great Vance had this tremendous rivalry. They both like to sing songs about alcoholic drinks. Ale, old ale, rum, rum, rum. Orange juice that's been left behind a radiator for four weeks. (laughs) Assuming that the movie is representing those songs fairly, they're awful, aren't they? (laughs) It really is just, I like this drink. It makes my nose turn pink. What else rhymes with pink? Dinker, dinker, dink. I like a drink. You'd like it too. La, 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 la. I'm drunk. <laughs> There's no thought. It's all Moonspoon June stuff. But when, of course, Trinder gives his Don't Embarrass the Old Folks song, it didn't go down well. No, but he's just starting out. I mean, it's kind of made up. It's one of those kind of biopics where don't let the truth stand in the way of a good story. But there is this idea that he gets to Music Hall simply because he's got a good name for singing in a pub. Guy at that pub, people like him, sings well. That's it, he's on the halls. There's one nice little cynical touch, actually, when he's had his audition and it's gone badly. And then, of course, he, he sings on his way out and that changes the planter's mind. And then when he comes back on to do his, his new material, the host says, never before seen on this stage, just a complete and absolute blatant lie. George Laban had not been seen on that stage before. He sang under his real name. Well, no. So no, some reports would have it there was no rivalry. Vance was a step up. So he was probably more in the good old days style of music hall. The ones that became the variety theatres, where the audience would be well behaved. Maybe there would be some dimming of the lights from the audience side. Batley. Playing to a slightly different audience. Leyburn was probably having to deal with heckles. And the Wilton's performance does show him being heckled. But not in a particularly vicious way. I've had that song stuck in my head for two weeks now. Charlie is my name. We should give a full rendition of it at the end of the show. Actually, it's probably out of copyright. I might ask some friends, maybe you could knock together a backing track. No, we're not actually going to sing it. No, bring it out on a jukebox sometime. Why not? Oh, Wevs, go on then. Hi, didn't I try and sing on the podcast once before? You tried to sing That's My Boy? That's a yes, yes. And you didn't get to the end. (laughs) In fact, one thing I'm thinking, we're not the ones to do this job, but somebody somewhere could write a book or make a documentary about the folk club comedians. Jasper Carrot, Billy Connolly, that scene. Because there is that element there, like I said earlier, about song patter, song patter, and that was a group of people whose patter overtook everything else they were doing. There's also a strange rant from the chairmans in Wilton's about aerated bread. Yeah, he's got a bit of a hang-up about that. The Aerated Bread Company have opened a tea shop, and there are lots of tea shops opening up, and he's saying it's bad for your digestion. Because music halls were about selling drink, that pub culture they grew out of, the entertainment is really to keep you in the room. And there is that thing in Wilton's where it's indicated up until now, entrance has been free, and they're introducing a wet ticket system which is you have to pay sixpence to get in, but you are allowed sixpence worth of refreshments from the bar. So it's that, again, we're seeing this turning point when the entertainment is the thing that's being sold and the bar is not at the back. 
So let's get to the really intense bit. Peter Sellers as G.W. Ross. Gary, do you want to say something about Peter Sellers? I think you know more about him than I do. And Tyler isn't here, and he'd probably outclass both of us when oh, it comes to definitely. Yes. that. definitely, yes. Yeah. I mean, by this point, 1970, so Sellers, I suppose, I think, I don't think that this would be incorrect. I think, I mean, obviously, yeah, Tyler could confirm this, but I think that this is a point in which Sellers' career is on a, a slightly sort of downward trajectory. I mean, he's had quite a lot of success on the big screen, but... By this point, sort of early 1970s, you know, he's some of the films he's doing, not quite so hot and what have you. But this is, of course, this is a world away from that. It's Peter Sellers in the same bill as Spike Milligan. And it's Peter Sellers just doing something effectively for fun. And that comes across, comes across really strongly in his performance here. Now, you rightly pointed out that I was talking complete cod's heads earlier when I said, there's no inheritance of Newgate players, and you're like, well, there's CSI and there's real crime magazines. Does this performance seem usual to you? Does it seem relatable to you as a 21st century being? I don't think that it has featured on the current series of Tonight at the London Palladium, <laughs> put it that way. I also don't remember ever appearing on Cracker Jack, and... It's not the kind of thing that Adrian Just ever used to interrupt and talk over, that's for sure. I found this really bizarre in a really exciting and stimulating way. It was really weird, and I was thinking this must have been par for the course at the time. It was. It was popular. He became famous from doing this. Do you remember when Bruce Forsyth had that kind of Friday night variety show? Uh, Brizzy's Guest Night. Yeah, I remember KD Lang being on it. This would be like Brucey having that show and bringing on Nick Cave. <laughs> the Ballad of Sam Hall. Or oh, I suppose you could say like John Sparks being on Free 2. Oh, no, hang on a minute. That happened. That happened. And Mark Heap. <laughs> so it is a man in the condemned cell singing about the fact that he's a murderer. Well, he doesn't admit to it, does he? I killed a man, they say. So they say. And he antagonises the audience. The things that started popping in my head is... This is a point where... It sounds ridiculous to call it pop music, but that's really what it was. Gus Elan and Murray Lloyd. We've done a thing about Music Hall without mentioning Murray Lloyd, so there's a big opening for us to return to this there. Have we mentioned George Ruby? Not mentioning him for reasons, because I'm talking about singers. George Leyburn, the great Vance, or the Lion Comique, that was what they were called, the guys who played Swells. They were pop stars. But at this time, there's no real divide between folk music and popular music. I don't think people would have recognised the distinction at the time. So I'm thinking, there's that. There's that point where... That divide doesn't exist. But the other thing it reminded me of, and of course this is something that comes from a world of spit and sawdust, wrestling. Sam Hall is a heel. Exactly, yeah, and he knows how to walk a crowd. Uh, Michael Grade's documentary about Music Hall, it is on YouTube, and it might get repeated now and then. And I think you said this appears in a Comedy Connections? Mm-hmm, Yes. It's a really intense bit. So he's there. My name is Sam Hall, Samuel Hall. 
Killed a man, they say, so they say. And he looks at the audience and he says, You're a crowd of muckers all. I have read reports that that word would change depending on the audience. And sometimes it wasn't muckers. <laughs> like you were saying, coarse, rude, blue. There are probably things that people think Victorians didn't say, but oh, they did. And he says to the audience, blast your eyes! And the audience start booing and hissing. And Sellers Ross Hall walks up and down and does like the hand in the crook of the arm, raise the fist gesture. The bras d'honneur, I think it's called. We call it the Hagarth gesture because of an <laughs> episode of The Likely Lads. And he picks up his chair and he swings it like he's threatening to throw it into the audience. And then there's another verse. And again, it ends with, blast your eyes. And it happens again. And the orchestra goes, it's weird. It's kinky. Somebody should do this on Britain's Got Talent or whatever the young people (laughs) who are older than me watch these days. But the thing is, the only way it would work, we we talked about that off air, the only way it would work would be you'd have to clue the audience in. The audience would have to know what to do. They'd have to join in. Um, they wouldn't join in without being told. But it would be funny to see the face of the, the judges if they really weren't clued up about it. But this is probably a crossover t- between that and the Penny Gaff culture and culture going back longer than we can even remember. The audience of that time did not need to be clued in. They just responded because they'll have seen similar acts. They'll have seen less successful versions of it. In the Penny Gaffs, they would put on these melodramatic plays and the audience would know to boo and hiss the villain. They would sing patriotic songs everybody knew to cheer. They would sing anti-French songs or whoever we were at war with at that point and the audience would know who to boo and when to boo and what to do. I used to go to a thing called the Film Forum, which was, I think, technically an educational program. But what it meant was we were paying a dollar to go and watch a film in a classroom on a Friday night. And for one season, before every film, we got an episode of Spy Smasher. And we were encouraged to boo and hiss and cheer <laughs> in all the right places. Those Saturday morning serials must have been watched in that way. It must have been quite a thing at the height of the movie serial to be in a room full of kids who were just... Ah! Well, I was going to say, it's pantomime, isn't it? Yes. But in wrestling, there's that word heat, isn't there? Well, there are various types of heat. And you don't want necessarily cheap heat, which is when you go for the obvious. So if it's somebody from out of town and they're playing Glasgow and they grab the microphone and they say, Glasgow sucks, everybody boos. That's that's cheap heat, basically, going for the most obvious thing. There's also bad heat, which was basically the crowd are bored. So that's, that's basically sort of like getting no reaction at all. That's a wrong kind of heat. Or just getting booed because people are just sick of the sight of you. But yeah, this kind of heat, this is good heat. This is legit heat. This is actually working the crowd properly and building it up and building it up and building it up to the point where you sort of get the impression that, okay, it wasn't going to happen in this performance, but you sort of suspect that if this had been in real life, when he was threatening them with the chair, he probably would have had a few chairs, you know, hauled in his direction <laughs> and bottles and all things as well. And full credit to Sellers, he sells it. There's one bit near the end where he nearly corpses. But it doesn't seem to affect anything unduly. No, you get mixed up with Telford Thomas. <laughs> Telford Thomas did not invent corpsing. <laughs> Wasn't the only person to ever do it. I keep saying that one of these days we're going to have to do a show where we explain all of our in-jokes. 
Because we're getting impenetrable now. Yeah, that time has possibly come. I mean, as soon as you said that, you just reminded me of that comment about Charlie Hickson once said he liked the idea of Mocker and Wise going on for 200 years. And basically their crosstalk now was absolutely unintelligible to anybody other than people who'd been watching them for 200 years. There's no way that you could pick up the, the story halfway through. What do you think the Glasgow Empire was one of the less true music hall audiences? Yeah, you could say that. You could say that. There's an aspect as well of... I'm not going to say that necessarily the, the Glasgow audience revels in this, or did revel in this, but particularly if you're in London, for example, you're going to have the choice of all these various gaffes, for example. You're going to have a, a lot of opportunities to see these various performers. If you are, say, in Glasgow, or if you're in Aberdeen, or, you know, I suppose you could probably argue then large parts of the north of England, or Northern Ireland, or whatever it may be, you're going to see performers, certain performers perhaps, on fewer occasions than if you're down south. So there is a sort of lightheadedness and also there's a bit of an approach where people perhaps they might not be quite as respectful of the performers it's like okay ah oh, you come up here now have you right then okay it's you know well you're not going to find it uh, an easy ride uh, around these parts and what have you and i think that it's actually fairly good natured in all honesty it's i know that like you hear stories of people being bottled off and what have you but generally speaking i think that the the heckling that that's attributed to people from the empire and so on it's ultimately good natured because if the person wins them over, they'll get their applause and appreciation and respect. So they're a tougher crowd, but they're not a drunken crowd. They're not a crowd that's just not going to react under any circumstances. They're, they're just not going to make it too easy for the performer. But I suppose you could say that from the performer's point of view, it makes them all the more appreciative of a round of applause at the end of it, if they get that far. Just remembering a story about Harry Enfield dying a death in Newcastle. Might have been doing that character he did that had a Newcastle accent. Or should I say Newcastle? And there was shouting at him and saying whatever the most insulting thing a Geordie can say to somebody who's from the South. And he turned to the audience and he said, yeah, but at least I'm not a Mackham. And that was it! They were with him! <laughs> Into regional hatred. <laughs> Can I just check, by the way, Interregional Hatred, was that uh, Ross King hosted that on ITV Nighttime? <laughs> In a barn. <laughs> In between the cock fights. Now round three, where the contestants are allowed to use corkscrews. <laughs> well, we spent the whole time really doing a scene-by-scene -scene breakdown of Wilton's, because I think it's covered most of what we want to talk about, and it leads to all sorts of interesting places. We did watch... A documentary-ish called A Little of What You Fancy. It is available on DVD, or it was. Gary, do you want to have a look and see what price it's going for on the world's most famous online seller of stuff? Because A Little of What You Fancy, 1968 film, and it does have that nice sensation of the remnants of the quarter quickies. There's a lot of just filling time. But because it's made in 1968... It is itself a historical document about 1968 as much as it is about 1880. Right, you better get your skates on, seriously, because a little of what you fancy, DVD, it is available, Amazon.com, but there's only one left in stock. It's £4.80. And if you don't grab that one and you still want a new one, then it goes up to £28.96. 
as we're recording this, there's only one left. So get on that quick. There's always the possibility of them getting more. If you can get a copy and get a copy for a price you like, do so. But that starts indeed in Wilton's and we have Helen Shapiro from It's Trad Dad singing The Boy I Love is Up in the Gallery. I just point out, by the way, that people who bought the item also bought Silver Dream Racer starring David Essex. There are kind of people. Hey, and uh, there's another thing at all. There's something that we should put on the list to do. Deaf at Broadcasting House. Definitely, yeah. So there is a talk about the mashers and the Lion Comique, and that just leads into them playing a song about a well-dressed guy and footage of Mark Eden wandering about Carnaby Street in a groovy jacket. And we're not really learning anything about Music Hall, but we're getting some nice footage of Carnaby Street in 1968. That was quite tenuous, wasn't it? Yeah, but I like that. It's charming. <laughs> it feels like it's been scraped together from different ideas. Like, we've promised something of this length. What can we put in here? Well, I, I went out and shot some footage on Carnaby Street just in case we needed it for something. Right, I'll take that. Send Mark out to uh, walk up and down and we'll cut that in here and we'll play an old song over it. We get a kind of golden oldie picture show making a video for the song I Live in Trafalgar Square, sung by Stanley Holloway. Barry Cryer as a music hall chairman. And I think that is actually with the company of the Players Theatre, who, of course, were on the good old days. That's a thing to talk about, the music hall chairman, because the chairman is necessary in a time when all the lights are up. He's as much there to take care of hecklers, and he was there, of course, to direct the bouncer, this is Bill Fraser's rather beery, slightly aggressive chairman. Barry Cryer as chairman is hale and hearty. And again, there are in-jokes. There is obviously a regular audience for this. So there's the phrase, habitués and sons of habitués. They go to a club or a pub. By this point, we're at the... St- I mean, who are we to talk about drifting off the topic when talking about <laughs> music hall? But it's like, this is actually not really telling us anything about the development of Music Hall, but thank you for preserving this particular thing in Amber. And about the last 10 minutes is given over to a recreation of the songs of Harry Champion. And that really is just it. The last 10 minutes are this guy singing a medley of Harry Champion songs, and when he's finished, the film's finished. There isn't a goodbye. We don't have Mark Eden, who brought us into the film, to take us out of the film. It's just, (laughs) yeah, that's it. Job done. And... He was played by John Rutland, who you see turn up in everything. And another connection with Open All Hours, because he turns up there and Arkwright convinces him to, to use the, the hairspray, which is, I think, just black boot polish. He also quite often appears with Dick Emery as well. You know skits, the guy who's supposed to be the inventor in the shed that Dick Emery plays? He's the, the chap who's always with him then. So yeah, he turns up in here, there and everywhere. And he did turn up on Good Old Days doing his Harry Champion act. So I think we've asked some good questions. It's a shame we couldn't find any good answers. We've just kind of disturbed the layer of dust that was over the idea of Music Hall. We haven't quite got it fully clean. It is a very broad topic. And I think if we return to this in the future, we could actually look at the transition then into, I suppose, what you call a variety. Yes. I think it's a bit like what Neil Gaiman once said about comics. It's a medium that people think is a genre. There's a lot of everything in there, but music hall-flavoured everything is slightly different from other types of everything. 
just before we say what's happening next week, we are open to suggestions for pop films of the early 70s. I've got one in mind. In fact, I don't know if we want to break down early 70s, late 70s, or if we just want to do a bunch of 70s films, but we're open to a few suggestions for pop films of the 70s. And we're going to have to think at what point we stop looking at pop films. At what point are we outside of the Jaffa zone? I think when we get to Cleopatra coming at you, that's, that's probably time to get off. The only reason I want to see that is because John Inman is in it as Mr. Humphreys. Okay, what I'm saying is please don't make us watch Absolute Beginners. <laughs> no, you, you, you were quite adamant you didn't want to see Spice World. It's not so much adamant I don't want to, but can he be scunnered with it? But next week, we are going to begin a substrand which is called Jaffa the Beatles, because that's what we're going to do. We're going to Jaffa them. And we're going to start with A Hard Day's Night. Tyler is going to be joining us for that. And we're going to look how the pop scene has changed since we last left it with What a Crazy World and Live It Up. Gary, can you give the good people chapter and verse on what we are and where to find us and where to find other people like us? Yes, if you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us, jaffas for Proust. You can also email us, feedback at sitcomclub.com. You can leave us a comment on podnose.com where you can also find all of the details of our past podcasts, Jaffa Cakes and also Sitcom Club. They're all on there as well. And yes, we welcome any feedback. Yeah, I left that hanging in there. I'm not sure why I did. No, just give us, give us your feedback. Positive. No, I'm, I've said that as if I was going to then follow that up with or otherwise. But no, just, just leave it there. Positive. Shower us with praise. Yeah, that would be nice, actually, if, if, if you want to do that. And also uh, with Pepsi Max, if uh, Pepsi Max are listening and they can send me some. Speaking of feedback, thank you very much to Joanne, who left us a lovely wee comment on podnose.com in regard to last week's edition on Industrial Action. And yeah, this is now actually Jaffa Cakes 31. We've still got some way to go before we actually rival the sitcom club in terms of editions, but onwards and upwards. So all being well, we'll see you next week. Me, Gary, Tyler, and four unruly mop tops. But until then, thank you for listening to Jaffa Cakes for Proust. <laughs>